we really had to understand that we were the military health system. We were an enterprise. We, all of the services, were in this together. And the only way that we were going to be able to make this work is if we could find a way to work together. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Dr. Raquel Bono is a retired Navy Vice Admiral and medical officer. She's a general surgeon with Trauma and Critical Care Fellowship Training. In this episode, she talks about her role in transforming the electronic health records used by the DOD and the VA. She also describes how the Defense Health Agency has evolved during and after her tenure as director and provides her thoughts about the future of the military health system. Dr. Bono is a trailblazing leader who shares many insights and lessons from a distinguished career. This is part two of our conversation with Vice Admiral Bono. Please listen to part one if you haven't already. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Vice Admiral, Dr. Raquel Bono to Wardocs. Ma'am, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. So one of the other things that you were involved in in a distinguished career was transforming the electronic health records used by the VA and the DOD. Now, I think all would agree with the desirability of having an efficient, standardized system that allows for effective information exchange between all entities. But that didn't seem to happen all that easily. What were the barriers and what is keeping us from bringing this ideal state to fruition? Wow. Those are some flashbacks you're creating. <laughs> the challenge with the digital solutions in any arena, but I think in medicine and healthcare in particular, sometimes it's easy to say, here's a digital solution and it'll make things faster. But sometimes those faster solutions are not necessarily better if the actual workflow isn't optimized. So I think that one of the biggest challenges we had, and, and I should preface this first off, we were one of the first ones, we being military health system, was one of the first healthcare systems to have an electronic health record. We just called it CHCS and Alta, and you guys are too young to remember that. I mean, that's what I grew up on. Uh, CHCS. I, I, I grew. I, I grew up with CHCS, and I, I can't okay. explain how how I knew what keystrokes to do. It was just something innate about it. So you had a little bit of that, but we actually had that ahead of of many of the healthcare systems in the United States. So we already had an electronic health record, but we had designed it to collect data in a certain way that wasn't necessarily a clinical way of collecting data. And so it's one of those things like if you're trying to use a digital solution for documentation when it's really designed for something else. So subsequent designs from CHCF went to Alta and you all ran into the same issues. We all, well, most people felt comfortable with Alta. We, we found the workarounds. We were able to kind of personalize it in some way. But we ran into a challenge that we were, and I, and I don't know enough about IT to express this very well, 
we were operating on on a base, an operating system that wasn't going to be able to flex to where the 21st century digital communication and digital documentation was going. And we didn't have the organic IT and digital talent within the Navy or within the military to build our own proprietary electronic health record, which is what Alta and CHCS were. We actually built that. I mean, we had vendors that did it, but it was ours. It was, it was the military's. But we just didn't have the organic talent or expertise to maintain it because digital technology was, was rapidly changing. So the only solution was a commercial off the shelf. And so we actually went out and, and did a very, a very formal and a very comprehensive RFP and received the proposals for a commercial electronic health record. And it was a big lift. It, it was just a big lift. And, and the part that, as I look back, the piece that, that was hard to do was making sure that we were all on the, on the same page for why we needed it to be and what we could each do to help make it the product that we needed it to be. But it was a lot. We actually needed to look at every one of our workflows. And our workflows were, how do we order, and this is an example, how do we order a CDC? And it turns out that across the military health system, there were at least 25 different ways of ordering a CBC. And what we needed to do was figure out what is the optimal six ways of ordering a CBC and then digitizing that and having those become standardized. Early in these discussions, you said you wanted to get everybody on board with kind of what we're doing and we kind of have a common vision. Was that just within the military health system or was the Department of the VA, were they involved in these conversations too, looking forward to a system that would take all of the needs of the federal patients? So before we had got, you know, MHS Jennifer's, we had tried working with the VA on what was called VLR, the Virtual Lifetime Electronic Record. And what we were trying to do at the time was we were trying to connect, what was it, Vista? which is the VA system with Alta and, you know, Alta Vista was all a good play on words. So we had tried working with the VA, but but it was that was when we realized that both systems were only going to go so far in terms of the digital upgrades and, you know, being able to to use them in a way that was effectively secure from a cybersecurity standpoint that would be able to continue to have the power and the capability to move into what was really a very complex and rapidly growing 21st century digital age. We had started out with the VA, and then when we realized that we could only go so far and that we used some of that in the background as we started looking for a commercial off the shelf, but we didn't have the VA come join us with this until I think it's been now a couple of years. So it was just as I was leaving, that's when the VA came back into the picture with MHS Genesis. So you talked about this great revolution in digital technology. How many finalists were there, I guess, for lack of a better term? And what were the ultimate decision criteria that were used to decide which one was going to be used? 
It was a very complex process. I mean, we had all the the regular, I mean, Cerner, Epic was in there. All of the big names were in there. And when we had, when we had set up the request for proposal on RFP, we had set the requirements for, and, and we did it just like we would do for a weapon system. Here are the requirements that we want for our electronic health record. It has to meet certain cyber conditions. It also has to be able to interface with other digital solutions because we would have these different hubs because, you know, we had patients that were being seen in civilian care centers and we needed to be able to, to collect data from there. So all of the major Cerner, Epic, everybody put in their, their proposals against our requirements. And we had a source selection board and they meet and it's it's all very confidential and nothing gets announced until it's been vetted. So the source selection committee met and identified. And when they're evaluating the vendors for this, they don't know the, they read the proposals and compare it to the requirements, but they don't know who the vendor is. So that's kind of blinded to them until the final decision is made. And then even the source selection committee doesn't know until until the deliberations are complete. So it was really against the, the requirements that we set and how well they, they said that they could meet those requirements that the decision was made. Where does price factor into it? I mean, how much of a, a weight does that play in the decision? It does factor into that completely because these are multi-year contracts. So for each of the requirements, you have to have a threshold and objective, a range of acceptable performance criteria. And so you you want to be able to get the best performing for the best price. So all of that's taken into consideration. And I don't have a recollection now of what the final figures were, but it was a lot of money. Well, as the only potential Genesis Cerner user that's on the video right now, I will say that the transfer of information on the Cerner Genesis, I think is much better. And I'll give you the example that I tell people is that I won't tell you how I used to look at CT scans at the 2 a.m. like we discussed. But now when I want to look at a CT scan, I take my cat card to a cat card reader at my home computer. I log in and I pull up a CT scan. Now it, it takes me the cybersecurity element, maybe 15 minutes to get onto the system. But I can now review a CT scan from home when it was extraordinarily challenging to have done that in the pre-digital era transformation. Absolutely. I appreciate you saying that because that was the only way we could. If I wanted to look at something, any kind of study, I'd have to go to the hospital to see something like that. But I do have, in this conversation, I am actually getting some MHS Genesis experience now on the other side through the patient portal. And I do have to say that being able to retrieve my results without having to leave a message or ask somebody who knows somebody who can help me get my results is, is a real benefit. So I know there's still a ways to go. And I'm always, the thank you for sharing that makes me feel a lot better hearing they share that, your experience. I'm always hopeful that people keep that, that long-term and their eventual end game in mind. Because if there's still some things that need to be done. I know that, I guess here in San Antonio, they just launched or they launched MHS Genesis a few months ago. I know in the National Capital Region, they just are now getting ready to launch that. 
And we had deliberately made the, the decision that we would go from the West Coast and come East. We also recognized that when we set out the super users on the West Coast and we knew our timeline, that we were also trying to take advantage of the fact that people would get a set of orders in two or three years. And so we were hoping that by the time the middle of the country and East Coast started deploying MHS Genesis, people had rotated. And as a matter of fact, one of the providers I, I saw at, at BAMSI had been up at Madigan and had been one of the users there. So it was helping to make the transition here. So I think there's a lot of good. I know there's just a lot of growing pain. I think that it was a necessary transition in order for the military health system to continue to make progress and stay at the, the cutting edge of electronic and digital data management. Yeah, when they came in for me, I said, I want mine set up like uh, Dr. Dan Scott because he had just moved from Travis Air Force Base. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that was a smart move. That was a very smart move. And that's the thing, too. You can you can ask Dr. Scott, too, well, how do you do it here? And and, and people have learned some pretty nifty things. And, and I, I appreciate that. I think there's also going to be a group of providers and users that aren't even going to know that we had CHCS. They don't even know CHCS. Wayne doesn't know we had CHCS. <laughs> I, have, I have to jump in here because there was always a joke that CHCS was like a cockroach that you could not kill. And if the apocalypse <laughs> happened, Alta would be down, Genesis could be down, but CHCS somehow <laughs> was always working. And you're not wrong about that because it, it, one of the things that we had to do, this is no, no joke on this one. Okay. We had stored so much data on CHCS, and we knew that even as we transitioned through Alta and to MHS Genesis, that we were constantly going to be having to retrieve data from our legacy system. So no joke, even though people had stopped having the technical knowledge where we could get somebody, a vendor who could update CHCS to keep it working for us while we retrieved we had to set special contracts aside to make sure that we always would have somebody who would know how to work the CHDS stuff until we finish extracting all the data out of there and finally transport it into the repository. So yes, your analogy to cockroaches is not entirely incorrect. So let's switch gears just a little bit here. You became the second director of the Defense Health Agency following Lieutenant General Rob, who served in it from its beginning in 2013 to 2015. Now, I don't think it's an understatement to say that the DHA was a dramatic shift in how the military health system was organized and implemented its mission. What was the biggest challenge for you during your four-year tenure as a director? And what did you do to overcome that challenge? You know, change is hard for everybody. And I think that there wasn't ever going to be anything easy about what we were trying to do. And I think that the piece that has always remained true for, for me was understanding what this was going to do for the person that we were taking care of, whether it was forward deployed in the MTF or a family member or a retiree at home. What did this look like to them? And, and were we doing were we, what were the best we could do to make this care what they deserved. And that was the part that I really wanted to keep reminding people. I mean, that was what I reminded myself in a, on a daily basis, especially when sometimes things would be a little bit more complicated. And 
That's not to say that that we couldn't do readiness because I'm a huge believer. I mean, that that was a part of my whole development and my whole growth in in the military health system was taking care of our patients in the best way possible, no matter who they were, and being always ready to do what we needed to do when we had to go downrange. And I didn't think these were mutually exclusive. They they couldn't be. If we were doing this the right way, they would they would not be mutually exclusive. They would actually enhance each other. But in order to pull that off, there had to be a shared understanding of where we could optimize our uniformed resources so they would have the best experience and the best resources available. And at the same time, develop a complementary, and this was key, a complementary network of care for when we, the, we in the military couldn't take care of some of our patients. And, and that was the thing that we worked really hard with the TRICARE contracts. But, and that was part of the portfolio for the DHA was a TRICARE conference, as well as helping to support and enable the operations in MTS. And that was always intended to be coordinated with the services because the readiness mission was all of our job. But as health professionals, no one could deny that being able to take care of our patients in the way they deserve was also very high on the list. So the intention was helping each of the MTS to optimize what they had and taking a market approach. And that meant we had to be able to work across the services. So, and I'll just use the National Capital Region. We had like 12 hospitals in the area and hospital MTFs and clinics and equally divided among the services. And when we started using the Fort Belvoir ORs for Air Force surgeons and Navy surgeons, what we found out then is we started fully utilizing the ORs at Fort Belvoir and we were giving the the med tech, the OR techs, a lot of experience that they hadn't been getting because we didn't fill up all the ORs or use all the ORs. And then if we could concentrate some of our more complex care at what was now the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, where how Bethesda and Walter Reed combined, and then they could get their more complex orthopedic vascular, urologic care, gynecologic care at what was a more specialized center. And it would be for everybody and it would be staffed by all uniforms. And then the goal was, is that the network that we created around the National Capital Region, and this was just the example, I mean, this was kind of the prototype we were working towards, would complement what we already had and not compete for what we already had. So, I, I like to use the orthopedic example that in the National Capital Region, we, at any given time, we had anywhere from 15 to 20 orthopods and or at least one was pediatric orthopod. There were, you know, there were any number of orthopedic specialists there. Well, I didn't want to duplicate that in the network with 20 additional orthopods, but I might need to get an orthopod who had additional training in, say, buying because we didn't have a spinal orthopedic surgeon or we didn't have enough of that. So the goal was always to optimize what we had within the MTFs and any kind of network of care 
that we would design with TRICARE was to complement it so that we keep as much care close by so that we could give the kind of experience to our our uniform personnel so they would maintain that level of, of preparedness. The challenge was multifactorial. You know, there were so many competing interests and there were so many different narratives that were coming from a variety of places. And being able to monitor and help modulate the narratives was one challenge. Being able to be responsive to variety of leadership from the congressional to the DOD to the service was also an ongoing effort where there was constant communication. And at that time, too, the other challenge that we had was that we had a very, for whatever reason, we had a very high turnover of appointed and elected officials, mostly appointed officials. So we were constantly having to explain what we were trying to do and what the what the DHA, DHA's role was. And so I think that the the progress we made that that General Rod Rob led off and then I was that I had the privilege of, of helping with and then General Place took and now General Crossland. I, I have to say that the piece that that I feel most gratified about is that at the DHA I worked with some incredible leaders who really understood that to help make this happen, that we just needed to have that constancy of our focus and our commitment and recognize that this wasn't going to be an overnight event, that it was going to take millions of overnight events before something like this would would take hold. But at the end, it was always about trying to make sure that we were doing the best that we could for our patients, no matter who they were. My role from the cheap seats or, or my interpretation of watching this happen was that the services didn't necessarily understand what this agency and how it was all going to work in that chain of command that the the DOD so used to. And I think the initial plan was just to, we're going to wait it out and Congress is going to change his mind and it's going to go away. And then the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act 2017, really said, no, 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 this is really going to happen and you got to make yeah. it work. Yeah. How, how you right. <laughs> I mean, how, how did you deal with that? Yeah, well, that's that's a great question. I don't think I have a very easy answer for that. But here's the irony of it, and you heard it here first, or maybe you haven't heard it. I mean, maybe you've already heard it before. That NDAA 17 that that said, okay, we're standing up the Defense Health Agency, and we're going to do this, was was largely based on an MHS review document that had been signed off. And when you looked at it, it recommended standing up the Defense Health Agency and having some of the shared services come under the Defense Health Agency. And that for the Defense Health Agency to help start the operations and supporting and and managing some of the operations in the MTS and allowing the services to really concentrate on readiness. And when you looked at that report, the report was signed off by the three previous surgeon generals who had just retired. So they all agreed that that was the way forward. And they gave that document to Congress. Congress turned that into the NDAA. I mean, they used, the Congress used a lot of other things. And so this was something that was actually created from within and then handed off to the next set of leaders who was Dr. General Robb and then myself. And, and so that's part of the irony of this whole thing. Now, 
that MHS review was one of 18 studies that had been done since 1947, since the end of the Second World War, because at the end of the Second World War, people were saying, there's got to be a better way to do military medicine. I mean, we did okay. We did pretty well. But we had people from different uniforms, different services. We, we've got to find a way to do this better. So the MHS review was the 18th study. 15 of the 18 studies had all recommended. Um, these were Blue River panels. These are congressionally directed st study groups. 15 of the 18 had recommended that we centralize, we, the military health system, centralize operations and function. And it was the NDA 17 that finally codified it. So you can imagine that if you're Congress and you've made this investment and you've written this, this law that's now in effect, that it's not going to go away anytime soon. And I think that was the piece then too, where all of the things that I just shared with you that I learned from working with Admiral Arthur, from being out in the field with the first Gulf War, that it all came together for me, that we, we really had to understand that we were the military health system. We were an enterprise. We, all of the services, were in this together. And the only way that we were going to be able to make this work is if we could find a way to work together. And of course, I was there kind of at the beginning of that. I was the second director, and so we'd made some initial. But it was really that my tenure was on the receiving end of the NDA 17 that really put that, the whole thing in motion. So going to the, the small world of military medicine, Ron Place was my senior resident when we were training in surgery back in the day in Madigan. So he was the director following you. When you were passing that baton off to Ron, what'd you tell him? I mean, what, what was the kind of the bottom line? I enjoyed working with Ron tremendously. Before, I mean, of course, another surgeon. So it's just like one of those things where we have the secret handshake and everything. So I'd enjoyed working with, with Ron Place for some time, well before either one of us had put on stars. When we became flag and general officers, though, and he and I worked together in the National Capital Region. I really enjoyed how insightful and how thoughtful he was on many of the things. He really taught me a lot in terms of, even though he had, he worked for me, I felt that he, he taught me so much in, in terms of giving me perspective and, and helping me understand where some of the areas that we could kind of pursue change. When we were passing the baton, he had already been a part of many of the conversations. So he knew the challenges. He knew some of the, the things that we were, we were dealing with. And I just told him that I, I really didn't have advice per se to give him because I felt he was just, he was the complete, the complete leader. And I thought he was just exactly the right person to follow me to help keep things going and, and to be able to interface with the elected leadership and the military and the service leadership. But I did say that there are going to be days where it's going to feel really rough. And you just have to remember that at the end of the day, that it's not going to be about us. It's, it's going to be about who we're serving and what they're going to need. And how do we make sure that we have a military health system for them when they need it? You know, nothing too profound there. And it was not, it wasn't anything that he didn't already know. So I think that I had a great deal of, of confidence and comfort 
in being able to pass the baton to Ron. So as a surgeon, you certainly understand the importance of repetitions and skills. You mentioned it earlier. So in, in the time period that you were the DHA director and, and following that, even and including now, we've sought to quantify whether people are ready to do their jobs in, in multiple different ways, KSAs, ICTLs, other, other ways. Why do you think that that transition occurred to the quantification? And what do you think the role of DHA is in those number of values? So the, the neat thing about being in a military health system is that while we're unique in who we serve and what our, our range of responsibilities are, we're still, I, I say a microcosm of the U.S. healthcare system, we're actually a macrocosm, we're big. The surgical community writ large, the American College of Surgeons was, was also dealing with it. How do they quantify that somebody is, is trained well enough to perform a certain procedure. And especially with our surgical procedures moving towards minimally invasive, laparoscopic, laparoscopic assisted, with new technology, how well could we say that somebody was, was trained and capable and competent? So we actually were joining the conversation with the American College of Surgeons in how does this look? What does this look like? How do we quanti- quantify that? Now, I think you know Dr. Elster, who's, who's now the dean of the medical school at USU, another surgeon. And I worked really closely with him because I thought, yes, this is something. If, if we surgeons don't say, okay, this is important, this is a mechanism to quantify how we know that we are performing at the top of our game and that we are doing what we say we're going to do and we're doing it safely. I felt that that part of DHA's role was to help support that effort to understand KSIs, how to quantify it, and then also externally validate that. Not with our stuff necessarily, but with the larger surgical community where this conversation was also happening. And you know, we had seen this in other non-surgical areas where they were trying to say, well, how do we know that when somebody says that they're board certified, that, that they can do this? Is it just the board certification or is there something else that we need to add to it? So I became really interested in that and I wanted to support that in whatever way was appropriate from, from DHA. But I also felt that it said something that not only were surgeons leading this, but the surgeons within the military were working with the American College of Surgeons and the American Board of Surgery to help them. So we could use this across all surgical domains and across military and civilian training and surgical communities. So we weren't in isolation on this. And I'd like to think that we helped lead this. But this was a conversation that we were definitely a part of. And, and I, I think Dr. Woodson who was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs at the time when we were doing this, also a surgeon. He was one of the ones that helped sign the agreement with the American College of Surgeons that we would work with them on, on setting those criteria to help us assess the capabilities and the proficiency of surgeons. Now, you've been a pioneer throughout your career, and you were the first woman surgeon to hold the rank of Vice Admiral, and you've received multiple awards for inspiring and influencing women in medicine. What does that mean to you? Well, I hope I'm also inspiring some men too. I <laughs> think you know, because I do I do mentor, continue to mentor both men and women because I think it's important that we share our lessons and we share insights with everybody. 
I think that the thing I miss the most about not being in uniform these days is the sense of purpose that I had as a military officer, as a surgeon in the military. And, and I would like to say that if people have heard me or worked with me or saw my interactions or how I conducted myself, I hope that what they took away from it is the sense that not just anybody gets to serve. There's something about the 1% of us that get to wear the uniform that is very, very special. Doesn't make us better, but it's special. And, and I hope that what people would take away from me is that that ability to serve doesn't just happen to anybody. And it, and it doesn't matter how long you serve. Just the fact that you have served in uniform is, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, how many people, like I said, only 1% of the population does that. And so I hope that's the legacy, is that there's, there's honor and there's pride in serving, no matter what you do in uniform and for no matter how long. But I, I hope that's what people would, would take away from, from that. And, and I hope that it's something while I really encourage all young officers and enlisted in uniform you know, to understand that they can do anything and that being in the military allows them to pursue some of their greatest dreams. Well, I mean, I talk about mentoring both men and women, and I do that because I think being able to advance women requires all of us, but it's the same all of us that needs to advance men and women to do their very best in the military. So it, I think if I've helped some find their voice, if I help some understand that they're, they're able to do whatever they set their, their hearts on and that there's some, I hope, that have walked away feeling good, knowing that they've contributed to something much, much larger than themselves. So I hope that's, that's my legacy. What is the best leadership advice you've received or a lesson you wish you had known earlier in your career? Oh, great question. Because I think every time I turn around, there's another lesson I think, oh gosh, I wish I'd, wish I'd remember that. I wish I'd learned that sooner. I think the, but the most enduring lesson is recognizing that leadership is, is not positional. Leadership is really about helping to make change happen. And if, if you're not using your authority, your responsibility, your position to help move the organization or move the dial in the right direction. It, then you, you may not be being as effective or as impactful as you could be. So I think that the important thing about leadership is recognizing that, that it is about helping to make change happen. And having said that, it is the most uncomfortable thing that you're going to do if you're going to be a leader and you're doing it well and you're doing it correctly. Because not everybody will agree with you about the need for change, number one, and not everybody will agree with you with how you're trying to make change happen. And so I think that's the other part of leadership lessons is how do you work with everybody across the board, help give people the right kind of environment and resources so that we're all pulling in the same direction. And so I think that underlying 
all of that with leadership in order to do that effectively, then you also have to have a really clear and a very clear understanding of who you are and how you yourself react to change or manage change. Because the one thing that was a lesson to me over and over again is that no matter what your position, if you are the person who's the leader, then people will observe you very closely and they will take any of your behavior, behaviors as permission to do the same thing. So you always want to make sure you give them permission to act the right way. It, it always amazed me how closely people observe you when you're in, in these jobs. Whenever we talk to surgeons, we always seem to find that there's a memorable case somewhere in their career and that sometimes it's a, an amazing save and sometimes it's a tough complication. Do you have any just memorable cases that instantly come to mind and someone says, tell me about a case? My memorable case is is not necessarily about the procedure itself, but it shouldn't come as a surprise to you. My memorable case happens to be about a patient. And she is, was at the time a very young woman whose mom and, and aunt, a maternal aunt, had died of breast cancer. And she had, she had a lump. I did a, a biopsy and it came back cancer. And at the time, we were just beginning to understand or appreciate the bilaterality of breast cancer in certain, in certain populations. We were also starting to understand the, the genetic influence on breast cancer. And we were just, we were just starting to do a little bit more lumpectomy with radiation or chemo and or chemotherapy. So we, it was, it was on the cutting edge of how we were treating breast cancer. So. We were doing modified radical mastectomies, but we were starting to move to lumpectomies. And, and so this particular patient, she said, I've got two daughters and they're young. She goes, I saw my mom get breast cancer and she died early. I saw my aunt get breast cancer and she died early. I want to be around for my girls. So what do I need to do? And we talked about it and what she finally on. Of course, you know, we all have M&M, right? Where you're reporting the case, or not M&M, you're, you're doing grand rounds or, or a pre-op conference. So I was doing a pre-op conference and I was presenting her. And we had, she and I had looked at the studies. I'd explained to her what we were seeing. And one of the things she asked me is, she goes, can you help me be there for my daughters? I said, well, here's what I understand that the data and uh, the trials are showing us. And so I presented that the plan of care was going to be a modified radical mastectomy on the one side, even though she was a very good lumpectomy candidate. And she had asked for a prophylactic subcutaneous mastectomy on, on the other side. And I remember at the time when I presented how much grief I got from everybody. And they said that this was too much. And I said, you know, for me, and of course I didn't articulate it, as well as I am tonight. For me, it all came home about working with the patient and being their advocate and really listening to what it was that scared them the most or worried them the most about what they were going through. And now it's, it, that's not so unusual to offer certain people a prophylactic mastectomy. 
but it was when I was doing it. And so I think when I think about that case, it reminds me over and over again why I went into this, why I went into medicine, why I went into surgery. And, and I always like to remind people when we were talking about the change to the DHA and, and the change to the MHS, that we, we can't forget that we all gravitated to the Syria because we wanted to help somebody. We went into medicine because we wanted to help somebody. We wanted to help somebody else. So that's always been my memorable case. And I, over and over again, even when I was at the DHA, I was reminded constantly, listen to the patients, listen to what they're saying, hear, hear what they're not saying, that you can, you can respond to them in a way that, that you're, you're healing them or you're helping them to heal in more than just your surgical expertise. So that's, when you asked me that question, that was the first case came to mind because I knew that I was up against a lot of, of resistance. I mean, fancy that, right? I felt working against resistance again. But it was something that for this patient, it was right for her. And I'm, I'm happy to say that she was somebody that would send me notices about her daughter's graduation. And she was there for all of their, their life with it. So I was very happy about that. That's a great story. I think that's one of the struggles you people have when they first start out being an independent surgeon or whatever kind of doctor is sometimes the the answer that you come to with the patient may not be what the crowd always wants to hear. Yeah, yeah, it, that's so true. And I think that, I mean, I, I think that that's when we talk about being data-driven and looking at the science, you know, sometimes it, it really means going that extra mile to, to be very critical about it and also to be, to be able to talk to people. I, I kind of did have a little bit of a leg up on this. My, my father, who's also a surgeon, was one of the surgeons that participated in the clinical trials with Dr. Fisher when they were moving towards the, the lumpectomy. And he told me back when he, was, when he was bucking the system about some of the calls he would get that were threatening him about how he was ruining people's practices. So I guess you could say that adversity is, is not something that was unfamiliar to me. I kind of grew up with it. You recently accepted the role as a member of the AMSIS Board of Directors. Why did you do so? And what do you think this organization brings to the military medical community? Once I left the military, I knew my work wasn't done in terms of trying to make healthcare, just healthcare writ large, a better system. And during the pandemic, you know, I did some work in Washington State. And what I realized there was that there were very similar challenges to what we had in military health, being able to make those interfaces and transitions of care as smooth as possible, making sure that the, the people who were at highest risk for complications from COVID received the care that they needed. And I think that that was something that I saw in the military as well. So I've always wanted to be able to continue to disrupt healthcare in some way. And I felt like most of my career in the military health system was disrupting it from the inside. And when I left, my husband bet me that he didn't think I could be retired for six months. And I'm kind of sorry to say that I lost that bet. I, I tried to hedge it. I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll spend a month in Europe. We went to Europe and then I came back and I thought, okay, what do I do for the next five months? Because I've got to try to win this bet. But I had an opportunity to work with Washington State on their pandemic response. And I saw that their challenges were very similar to ours in terms of the system of care, systems of care. And then as I've helped other people or worked with other other folks, 
I always needed that. My first, my first allegiance is, is always going to be the military health system. But the other piece that I really felt very strongly about, and I felt this way back when I was an 04 lieutenant commander, was that if we could do something the right way in the military health system, then it was going to work anywhere else. And so I think the best proof of concept is our military health system. And when AMSIS asked me to, to be a part of their board, I saw that as an opportunity to continue to help the military health system be the best healthcare system and the model for other healthcare systems across the United States. So, so for those that thought that I was done rocking the boat for the military health system, I would just have to say, stand by. <laughs> One of the things that the services are struggling with a little bit now is, is recruitment. If a high school or early college student came to you and said, hey, I'm interested in military medicine, what advice would you give them? Oh, yeah, I'd say go for it. I think we need to start younger than high school, though. I think we need to start in middle school, grade school. I still have an opportunity to talk to a lot of groups, and I've mentored high school students all the way through college, and they're now joining the military. Some of them are going into medicine. Some of them are going into other, other um, MOSs. But I think that what I like to tell them is if you want an opportunity to show everybody how good you are and how proficient and confident you are, join the military. Because once you are in a situation, once you're in an environment where you're asked to perform at a certain level and you meet that performance threshold and beyond, then those types of, of accomplishments tend to get advanced. And my experience in, in the Navy was that it was always based on my record of performance that I was advanced. I, I, it, no, I can tell you that none of my advancements were gimmies, that it was all predicated on performing at a certain level and being very competitive with my peer group. And I could count on that. So I felt that if I was being given a fair evaluation and fair shake at advancing their system based on my performance, then that was a system that I wanted to remain in. And I, I would also tell anybody who's interested that being in the military will give you access to experiences and opportunities that you won't get in the civilian world. And then finally, if you truly want to learn and acquire leadership skills, the best place to do it is in the military. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, I work in the civilian world now with a lot of different companies. And while some of them are very successful and, and others are extremely successful, doesn't hold a candle. I mean, and I respect a lot of these organizations that I work with. I'm very impressed with what they've done. But when I look at the leadership there in corporate America versus the leadership in the, in the military, doesn't even hold a candle. So I would tell people, if you're interested in the military, you know, do it to be able to show people that what you're capable of, do it so that you can pursue opportunities that would not otherwise be available to you if you are in the civilian world and do it if you're interested in learning what effective leadership looks like. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Raquel Bono on Wardock's podcast. Ma'am, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Well, thank you. And thank you guys for doing this. This was great. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts. 
and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.